Praise God. It's good to be here. It's a joy to be with you at this 62nd annual missions conference. That kind of blows my mind a little bit. I am so excited about that. This is my second year in attendance with you. It's an honor to be gathered together here with so many with a heart and a passion to see the kingdom of God advanced around the world through the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel that more and more souls from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and people group might come to know, love, honor, and serve the same Jesus that we love and are here to exalt today. Amen? Longing and working together with gospel motivation for the day when, as it says in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God uh, as the waters cover the sea. And we are here, what are we talking about? We're talking about reformation and revival. We need a reformation, a rediscovery of the Word of God. We need revival, an outpouring of the Spirit of God. But here's the question, is it merely a personal reformation and revival that we're speaking of. Already we've heard it's, it's not merely a personal reformation and revival. Though it may be that there's some here that need a personal reformation and revival, a recommitment and submission to the authority of the Word of God and a fresh outpouring of the Spirit of God in their personal lives. But we're gathered together here today, yes, first as individuals who are ourselves in need of the Lord, believers, Christians. But remind me, is this not a pastors and missions conference? It is. Amen. It is. You can participate. That's all right. It will be okay. Therefore, the context of the Reformation and the revival that we're speaking of is the context of the church. The global church, yes, but more specifically our own local churches. Wherever we have, by God's providential call, been tasked to care for the people of God. We are believing that being here and spending this time uh, with other like-minded pastors and missionaries, sitting under this teaching over these days, might be a deposit under, uh, under this teaching, might be a deposit that we can take back. Uh, and by God's grace and the help of the Holy Spirit, we might see it nurtured and grow in such a way that our local churches are built up and edified. Amen? That we might not only personally experience a rediscovery of the Word of God and an outpouring of the Spirit of God, but that the whole church to which we belong and are a part of and share some part of leadership over might experience the same thing. Amen? May God do it. I want to talk to you today about the reformation of church membership quickly. Uh, but uh, Pastor Matt set a good example, and, uh, and so if I take a little extra time, he said it's okay. Um, I'm praying, even though it's going to be quick and a bit of a roundabout way, I'm praying that it stirs you up to greater and further study and contemplation. But let me ask you this, what has your experience with church membership been? Do you have an experience 
with church membership. Many of us coming from more broad evangelical or even non-denominational places, sometimes membership begins to kind of be almost like a dirty word. Uh, And so let me ask, was it formal? Was it informal? Was it more of a club or is it more of a family? And really, does it matter? Uh, To do this today, to talk about the reformation of church membership, I want to talk to you about what the church is, where the church is, and how the church is. So if the context of this reformation and revival is the church, it may be helpful to revisit again what the church is. So what is the church? Contrary to popular opinion, the church was not created, nor the canon, uh, by Constantine. But like marriage, and I appreciate my brother Jason King today, like marriage, the church was not initiated or invented by man, but by God. We see shadows of its reality throughout the Old Testament, from the garden through Abraham, Moses, and David, and beyond with Israel and the prophets. But the church as we know it today was spoken into existence by Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19. This is the first place that we see it in the New Testament. In Matthew 16, verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do you say, who do people say, excuse me, that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. At least not yet. This is the first time, as I said, in the New Testament, we see the word church Used In the Greek, the word Jesus uses is the word ekklesia, which means essentially called out ones or, or rather an assembly of called out ones. It's a gathered group of called out people. You see, out of all of humanity, there is a group of called out people, called out from the world, called out and away from sin and called into a family, the family of God. And this is the church that Jesus is building. It is a family equipped for war. It is a conquering family. For he says, what? That the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now just a word to the wise. Gates are not weapons of offense. They are fortifications of defense. They are not used to oppress, they are used to repel. And so what Jesus is saying is He is saying that the church that He is building, this called out people out of all of humanity, have become His own family, formed by His own word, and that they are going to live and exist to take back enemy territory. Hence we get the terms church militant and church triumphant. So the church then is a supernatural and eschatological reality, 
birthed from the very word of God, a triumphing family, a body that ultimately descends from heaven in the power of the Spirit through the means of grace, which is what? The preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments. We see the shadow of this when we gather together and participate every time we gather under the banner of Christ and His cross. Again, preaching the Word and administering the sacraments. The fullness or the substance of which we will all see together when we experience the reality described in Revelation 21 verses 9 through 27 in John's vision of heaven coming down to earth. In short, the church is every person, everywhere, and for all time, who by grace, through faith, either forward-looking in faith in the Old Testament, or backward-looking faith in the New Testament, repents, receives, and trusts in Christ, who are born again, whose testimony is the same as Peter's, Revealed to them not by man, but by the Father. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as John 1 tells us, they are born again, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. So did you catch that? Let me simplify it even more. The church is made up of every true believer of Jesus who has ever lived or ever will. It is a beautiful and diverse collection of people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and generation. And each individual, by virtue of faith in Jesus Christ, is already, hear me, immediately and fully a member of the church of Jesus. The assembly of called out ones whom he is creating, building, and sustaining in the gospel. That's a lot of people. Every single one immediately, permanently grafted into the church of Jesus Christ. That's what the church is. The question then is, where are all of these people? Where are they? Let's talk about where the church is. You see, we are not the first to seek and sense a need for reformation and revival within the church. We've already talked about the Protestant Reformation of the 16th and 17th century. The magisterial reformers who came before us felt the same urge for reformation. Hence, the title given to that age of man, the Reformation. And in that Reformation, it became clear that the church had drifted far from its original mooring. The anchor which was meant to hold it had broken free and they were adrift and they began to ask if the church they belonged to even really was still the church at all. And if it was not, Was it ever and could the true church now be found? And so the rallying cry of the Reformation that most of us know come in the form of the five solas. Matt mentioned sola scriptura by scripture alone. The the shorthand for all of it was sola fide, which is only Latin shorthand for justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which is revealed through Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. But before it was sola fide, the rallying cry of the Reformation was ad fontes, which literally means to the fount or to the source. 
In other words, they were declaring what we have to do as the church is to get back to the source, the Word of God, the fount. That was their fundamental work, and the work that they built during that time is what we still stand on today as Protestants. Going back to the Word of God, they were able to establish where the church could be found. Like any good stool, it must have at least three good legs. And they establish from Scripture three things that tell us where the church is. The church is where the gospel is rightly proclaimed. The church is secondly where the sacraments are rightly administered. And thirdly, the church is where discipline is engaged in faithfully. And we can see these things very clearly in the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came to them and said what? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he commissions them. Go therefore and do what? Make disciples. How is this being done? Through the proclamation of the gospel. Where the gospel is rightly preached. He says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, what? Then they are rightly under the authority of Christ, administering the sacraments that He gave to the church, namely communion, the Lord's Supper, and baptism. One necessarily coming before the other. And so we see here baptism. And then verse 20, he says what? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. In the King James where I was brought up, it was teaching them what? To obey all the things that I have commanded you. And behold, he gives this promise. In these things, as you submit to this authority, as you preach and proclaim the gospel, making disciples, as you administer the sacraments that I've given to you as a gift of grace to the church, as you teach them to obey all the things that I've commanded you, then he says what? There and in these things, I will be with you always, even to the end of the earth. Age, excuse me. And so what do we know? We know that if we separate ourselves from those things, what have we done? We have separated ourselves from Christ and from His authority, and yet we still want to call it the church. We need a reformation. So we know what the church is, we know where the church is, but who in the world knows who they are? Who is the church? So there is membership in the global and universal and eternal church of Jesus, that which we would rightly and gladly call the church Catholic without any sort of binding to the Roman bishop in Italy. But the Bible also reveals for us a different kind of membership in the church of Jesus, one that is localized, intimate, and while temporal, is extremely beneficial this is where membership comes in usually our idea of church membership biblically often comes from those passages in Paul's letters where in our English translations of the Bible he actually uses the word translated into English member using the human body as a metaphor to describe not essentially what a member of the church is but rather how a member of the church is. 
essentially part of the whole, connected to the rest of the church. And the word used is literally, in the Greek, appendage or limb. Now this is not completely useless, again, for talking about how a church member is, but it is perhaps not the best starting point when talking about what church membership or what a church member is. While some may argue that any kind of formal church membership is not biblical because you can go through the pages of Scripture and not find explicit mention of it in the text of Scripture, they are foolhardy and mistaken if they believe that all doctrine for the church must be explicitly stated in the text. And that God has not given His Word in order that it might be searched out and examined that we might gain not only from its explicit teaching, but also from its implicit teaching as well. Certainly not drawing doctrines from obscure passages, but when something can be seen by what other theologians have termed good and necessary consequence, it is our duty to recognize it. Amen. Let me give some anecdotal help, perhaps you may relate to this. I have five kids at home. There's seven of us in like under 1,700 square feet. It's fun all the time. And in our home, if someone is asked to unload the dishwasher and all they do is only exactly was, was explicitly asked, let me tell you, they have misunderstood and failed the assignment. Because usually the reason they have been asked to unload the dishwasher is because there is already a pile of dirty dishes that is accumulating in the sink. I was waiting for some of the moms and the wives to say amen on that one, right? So when someone is asked to unload the dishwasher, it is implied that part of that job is then also once... The, now the dishwasher that once was full but now emptied would then be refilled with the presently waiting dirty dishes that are in the sink. This should be seen by good and necessary consequence to the course of action required. Get it? No? Shall we talk about the wet clothes in the washer when someone's been asked to do a load of laundry? Right, like if my kid was like, oh, do a load of laundry. Oh, there's wet stuff in here. Let me take that, dump that on the ground, and just look. No. Right, there are some things that we ought to be able to know by good and necessary consequence. Humor aside, you get the picture. Perhaps the most important doctrine that we would all here confess by good and necessary consequence is faith in and obedience to our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who live and reign in unity together forever. Amen. Amen. The Trinity is not a doctrine explicitly stated, but is rather one of those glorious truths and gems of God's Word which has been mined for our benefit and we are able to deduce with confidence by good and necessary consequence. Church membership is the same. I want to walk quickly with you through some different texts, and we may spend more time on some than others. I've spent my entire life in the church. Um, I've been in full-time ministry now for 20 years, over 20 years this year. 
most of that time, membership was treated as merely something that we had to go through so that we could legally have a membership meeting once a year where people voted on something. And if we didn't have membership, we had no role. If we had no role, nobody could vote and we couldn't do what our bylaws told us that we should do. And so I carried on in that. In fact, it got so loose, we didn't even have to have membership meetings anymore. We just did away with it in the pastor as CEO model. Uh, and then it was like, well, then who do we put into planning center or whatever other back-end uh, database system that you might use in your church? And so then the, the criteria for membership, believe it or not, became, okay, if they've been here at least three times, I think it's time we can put them in the database. That's technically our membership. Or <laughs> maybe they, if they give, they don't even have to come three times. If they put something in the offering with their name in it, by golly, put them in. They're a part of the church. But that's not the way that Scripture sees it. It was a little over 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I would say, when God was bringing me through my own personal reformation that I found myself in Hebrews chapter 13 and I came to verse 17 and it hit me like a ton of bricks. You see, I had come to this place here in San Antonio and I began to adopt this idea that I was maybe together with someone like Pastor Matt, a, a co-pastor of two million people in the city of San Antonio. But then I get to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So the question becomes, if here Scripture is calling the membership, the body, the, the assembly of called out ones to obey their leaders and submit to them, who are their leaders? Were, were the people in the church that I was pastoring at that time meant to submit to the pastor, to Pastor Matt over here at Christ as King? Were, were their members supposed to submit to me over where I was at that time? The answer is, how could they? Likewise, who, not only who are the people that are submitting, but who are their leaders? It goes both ways. We need to know who are the people that are being called to submit and who are the leaders that they are being called specifically to submit to. Suddenly, my world got a lot smaller, especially if I take seriously the part that says, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Started going through the planning center database going, wait a minute, I don't even know, I know I've never seen this person before in my life. Am I going to have to give an account for them to God? Why? Because they came in and they put something in the offering and it had their name on it? Now I have to give an account to God for them, for their soul? I don't even know who they are or what's going on in their life. I don't even know if they're saved. I didn't baptize them. I haven't seen them at the communion table. I don't even know who they are. Suddenly, membership becomes 
a pretty important thing in the church. Not only for those who are called to obey and submit, but especially for those who are called to keep watch over souls as those who will have to give an account. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Now Peter, writing to the church, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I'm sorry, which? Which people? He says, the flock that's among you, who are they? Are they numbers in a database or do they have faces and names and stories and families, children? The answer is, of course they do. And here, Peter is exhorting the other elders of whom he humbles himself to the point of not even saying, I, Peter, an apostle by Jesus. He says, no, I, as an elder with you, he says, shepherd them with joy, willingly, eagerly. And then he says what? And be an example. Well, how how can he be an example if he doesn't know who they are? If they don't have faces and names, if they... if this is just some sort of informal thing where anyone comes in and anyone goes out, it's not how it works. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For Scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. We all said amen to that. This next part we don't really like. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So who are the ones giving honor and wages? And who are the ones bringing a charge? There are two or three people from the membership of the body. There are people that can be named. There are people that can be pointed to. They are those that are known by the one who has the charges being brought against him. The ones who are bringing the honor and sharing in all good things with those who teach are people that are known. In Acts 20, verse 28, says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you oversiers to, overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Was there not not only a number, but faces and names in the mind and heart of our Savior upon the cross? Did he not say in John chapter 6 that he would not fail to get every single one that the Father had given to him? And that anyone who came to him, he would in no wise cast out. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. I won't belabor the whole text, but you know where Paul comes in and he says, Hey, there is a mess in the church. It needs to be dealt with. There was a specific person who was sleeping with his stepmother and not for warmth and comfort. 
Paul says, you must purge the wicked man from among you. How can you kick someone out if there is no in? And then Acts chapter 2 and all through the book of Acts, but in Acts chapter 2 verses 37 through 47, there is a numerical record of those who have professed Christ and been filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 41, and an acknowledgement that the church was tracking the growth in verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There was devotion within the church. There was an election held in Acts chapter 6. How can there be an election if we don't know who the candidates are? But because the membership of the ecclesia, the body, this gathered assembly, was something that was living under authority and in submission to Christ and the leaders that he had placed over it, then they could identify those that, as they said in Acts chapter 6, were those who uh, were full of the Spirit, men of faith and the Holy Spirit, like Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor and Timon, again, these were men with faces and names. And then it blows my mind at the end of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 16. I encourage you this week, go back and just count the names of the people, of the membership of the body of the Roman church that Paul calls out by name because he knows them. He knows them. These are the members of the church. In 1 Timothy, Paul says the widow can be enrolled to receive care from the church. How can we do this if we don't know who the church is? Never mind the 54 one another's that are listed in the New Testament where we are called by the imperatives of Scripture to love one another, serve one another, greet one another, bear one another's burdens. On and on it goes. To whom am I meant to one another together with? It's the membership of the church of Jesus Christ. So, let me give you 12 reasons why membership matters quickly. Number one, it's biblical. I think we've established that. Jesus established the local church and the apostles did their ministry through it. The Christian life in the New Testament church is church life. And Christians today should expect and desire the same. The church is its members. To be a church in the New Testament is to be one of its members. Read through the book of Acts and you will want to be a part of the church because that's who Jesus came to rescue and reconcile to himself. It is, or at least ought to be, a prerequisite for the Lord's Supper, the means of grace. The Lord's Supper is a meal for the gathered church that is for its members. And you want to take the Lord's Supper. And you ought to do it regularly. It's officially to represent Jesus, to be a member of the church. The church of Jesus are his representatives before the nation. 
It's how you declare your highest allegiance. Your membership to the church becomes visible as you make your membership to the church visible and public. Trials and persecutions may come. But the words of Jesus is that I am with you. And the response of the church is that we are with you, Lord. It's how to embody and experience biblical images. What it means to be the body of Christ, the temple of the Spirit, the family of God. If you want to experience the reality of the metaphors that are used by Paul and Peter and James about the church in the New Testament, you cannot experience those things segregated, divorced, and separated from the rest of the members of the church of Jesus. You want to experience the interconnectivity of his body, the spiritual fullness of his temple, the safety and intimacy and shared identity of his family. Again, it's how you serve other Christians. This is how you will be known, Jesus says, by your love. We often stop there. It's where the world wants us to stop. Hey, I thought you guys were supposed to love everybody. But what did Jesus say? You'll be known by your love for one another. Even in the New Testament, Paul says that we are to love especially the fellowship of the brethren. Membership helps us to know who the church is so that we may be responsible to love, serve, warn, and encourage. It enables us to fulfill our biblical responsibilities to Christ's body. It's how we know who it is, Hebrews 13, verse 17, that we're meant to obey and who it is that we're meant to lead. It helps us as leaders to know whom, again, that we are going to give an account for before God. And it enables church discipline. Remember the three-peg stool, the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, but there was a third peg. And what was it? It was church discipline. Jesus said, I'm going to establish my church. I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the first thing he does is he gives keys of authority to the disciples. What were those about? So that they could randomly call out things in the ethereal realm and bind them and loose them by the Spirit in Jesus' name? No, it was for the purpose of church discipline. To be able to say who was in and to be able to say who was out, not on their own authority, but based on the authority of Christ and His Word. It gives structure to the Christian life. It places an individual Christian's claim to obey and follow Jesus into a real-life setting where authority is actually exercised over us. My brother said it earlier, if you're a pastor, who is your pastor? Where is the authority over your life, certainly, primarily, that authority is Christ. But where is our accountability on earth? It's a question we must ask. It builds, lastly, it builds a witness and invites the nations. Membership puts the alternative rule of Christ on display 
for the watching universe as we seek out to obey everything that the Lord has commanded us we do that in the context of the membership of the church and as we do that the onlooking world sees that where everyone else does what is right in their own eyes the church of Jesus lives in submission to the rule and reign and kingship of Jesus the very boundaries which are drawn around the membership of the church yields a society of people which invites the nations to something better. So I ask you, what has your experience of church membership been? Whether formal or informal, is it in line with what the Word of God says it ought to be? And if it is not, then now, today, is the time for reformation and revival in this area of our lives and our churches. That is the response that is required. Well, wait a minute, brother. Our bylaws, hey, brother, respectfully, your bylaws might need to be rewritten. Well, I don't know if the rest of the congregation, hey, brother, the Lord has appointed someone to lead, to go in and to come out and to go back in again. It's time to stand up and say, we're not going to do things according to the empty deceit and philosophies of the world according to human standards. We're going to do them according to the word of God. It's time for a reformation. It's time for a revival. It starts here. Amen? Lastly, quick quote from Spurgeon. You've got to give time for Spurgeon. He says this, Give yourself to the church, you that are members of the church, have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had ever joined a church till I found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, and this is the beautiful part of this quote, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should, as speedily as possible, also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on the earth? If it's right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it's right for everyone. And then the testimony for God would be lost to the world. As I've already said, the church is faulty, but that is no excuse for your not joining it if you are the Lord's. Nor need your own faults keep you back, for the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who though they are saved are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers." The church is the nursery for God's weak children where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. The church is, in fact, the dearest place on earth. And we ought to be proud to be members of it. Amen? Amen.